The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Asking you whatever questions you may have from the weeks we've already yeah. been through. What was it like for you, going over the homework and the last issues? Yes. This is about the. This is about the home. The foot. The foot. It's not on the machine. Oh, it's not. No. So the first bullet in the last week's homework was meditation. Listen to, and the last sentence there was listen to the guided meditation online. Which guided meditation was that? <laughs> Sorry, that never appeared. That's okay. that's. We apologize. I apologize for that. Other people? I don't think so. Was it easy looking at the um, whole concept of advanced directives? And you immediately knew exactly what you wanted to say? Please. Mike. Hi. I sent um, the detailed one that was kind of Sesame Street, real easy to follow, real thorough, to my mother because she hasn't had one updated in a while, and my father has Alzheimer's. So I think this was really useful. There's a question over here or a comment. Yeah, I found the biggest problem was I wanted to talk about it and nobody wanted to listen. That, that is one of the major problems. And so um, we need people who are trained to help facilitate those conversations and more specifically uh, initiate them. So there are training programs available uh, for people who wish to do that. People who wish to be trained to help others? Correct. I just wanted to say that um, I found the uh, uh, five wishes very helpful, and it's not something that I sit down and do. It's something that I want to continue to reflect on and add to and gradually fill out all of the information. So you do understand? I think so. Yeah. Just behind you. Uh, I looked at the, we're talking about the five wishes, right? Yes. Yeah. So it turns out that uh, next week I'm going for some uh, routine or uh, annual kind of thing. And it says, bring your advanced directive with you. And I'm thinking about taking this five wishes sign. Is that, it is appropriate? Is that? Absolutely. And another, I thought I could print out a couple of them for my friends, but I went on the website and they sabotage it. No matter what you click, they just take you to some advertisement. I could not find a no-nonsense printable link. 
there is a, a Aging with Dignity, or what's the name of the organization who uh, created this, has a website, and you can purchase uh, printed copies or electronic copies from them. So there's a small fee. There's a small fee. Well worth it. So the copies you got were donated. I found the whole, I'm finding the whole thing very helpful. I am uh, expanding on it. I'm going to meet with my son pretty soon. Uh, I ordered those um, cards, and I'm really anxious to get them because I, th I really liked the way it was presented, the way, the different ways people use them. Um, I forget what are they called? Uh, go, go wish. wish instead of go fish. I thought that was pretty clever. Um, and I, what I'm planning on doing is practicing with uh, a friend of mine who also is an IMC member so to kind of get the nervous stuff out because I don't think anybody else will feel very comfortable with them at all because they're pretty, <laughs> you know, the questions are, are pretty, they hit you in the gut if you see them for the first time. And for me, I'm really so focused on this that now it's like, okay, that's fine. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't bother me, but I've been really immersed in this. So, I mean, whatever I can get is great. And I, I want to thank you for that list of how to list all your stuff everywhere. You know, I printed that out, and I'm going to go down and, and just, do you know what list I'm talking about? Yes, it's the, the, uh, when you're supposed to get your affairs in order, these are your affairs. Right, and where everything the, is located. is Yeah, where everything is located, that is so, so helpful. So this has been a, a wonderful five weeks. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. AARP, if any of you are members, has a, a wonderful booklet that is similar. It, it includes things like military service and discharge, because if you were in the military or know someone in the military, you can get other benefits and a whole bunch of things in there that I wouldn't have thought of. So that's another, another guide, AARP. There was a resource list of places who can help with this. Um, the Coalition for Compassionate Care in California is a particularly good one. Uh, and that's, you have a handout with that information printed on it. Well, I've really appreciated the breadth of this uh, five weeks, but I, I feel that now I have to go over, you know, step by step, session by session, and really digest it because it's, there's just so much material, and some of the things I have addressed, but a lot of them I haven't. And uh, so that's my next step. Uh, not specifically just death, but the whole, the whole range of things that have been presented. It should be Thank clear you. that this is an ongoing process for yeah. all of us. And as we have experiences, um, we may change our perspective. Yeah, I found the material to be so much that I really um, I really struggle to do all the readings, and um, I almost feel like 
if it's in five sessions, if it was done every other week, I don't know if that would ever work out. But mm. um, I, um, and again, I too will be going back and really digesting this because I felt like it was really too much for a five week period given that I do a lot of other things also. If this was the only thing I was doing or course I was taking, it'd be a different story. It is purposefully concentrated. Like when you get a can of soup, you have to add water. <laughs> and um, it's like cows have more than one stomach. And when we say ruminate on something, that's exactly what a cow does. Um, they digest over a period of time. So there's no way that anyone could complete this in the space of five weeks. So um, you weren't expected to. And because there are things online, it allows you to return to them uh, at a time when your bandwidth isn't completely filled. And um, I really hope that we can continue on a mo monthly basis or whatever to meet at a time that I can do it. I will make an announcement at the end. Hiya. So in the same vein of having a lot made available and maybe not um, enough time to digest, we're going to dive into the depths of the fourth messenger. And you see the fourth messenger sitting there. <laughs> They come in all shapes and sizes, but the distinguishing characteristic is this um, complete commitment to the path to awaken and the, the striving to awaken. So as the story goes, as you know, the um, Buddha-to-be, Siddhartha Gautama, saw a very old person decrepit, weak, and a very sick person, and a dead body. And he put that all together, realizing that he was also subject to that, as we all are, and taking in the, the fullness of that realization of the inevitability of these conditions in human life. And then he met the fourth messenger, the Samana. Saw the Samana, this is a monk or a nun, but that person completely devoted to awakening. And this um, Samana had this peaceful, happy countenance. And the Buddha to be realized, that's, that's what I need to do. Turn away from the world and throw myself into that endeavor to find true relief and release from suffering, liberation. So ordinarily, or as you might see in the suttas, the untaught ordinary person deals with stress and suffering in some of these ways, denial, 
So if we want to act like it's not happening to us or avoid it, finding any myriad of ways to escape from it, can fight against it, try to fix it. Where All of these are really skills in a sense, maybe not resignation or despair. I wouldn't call that a skill. But some of these things we do use in order to get through the tough spots in life. It's not necessarily unskillful to use them. But the alternative, the Buddha said, to being caught up in the suffering of this realm is to pursue a path to awakening. So we have that option. And given that you're sitting here in this place and you're practicing, it says that you've, to some degree, embraced that option, I believe. So that's what we want to talk about. How do we do that? And when I said that some of these uh, ways of dealing with suffering can be skillful, what I mean is sometimes the intensity is so great that we need to step away. We need to lose ourselves in a movie or some other way of backing away from what we're experiencing. But if we do that consciously and say, okay, I, just, I need to give my heart a break here, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to distract myself, and then I'm going to come back to this. That's the skillful way of, of using these means. As an example, I was talking to my sister-in-law the other day, and her son, who was 32 years old, died of um, insulin shock about six months ago. And she said to me that she, she really feels the, the support from people who have lost a child. When they t- talk to her, she can really get that they know what she's going through. And she said that they tell her that it takes about two years. And she said, I don't know if I can get through two years of feeling like this. And so, of course... When we go through these kinds of experiences, then we need to use all of the availability of not just, not just our faith, our practice, but we may, we may need to rely on other means too. So here are the practices that we've been talking about during these five weeks. And I want to really invite you, even though you've seen this list before, to really look at each item and consider where you are with these. So forgiveness for ourselves and others, you know, just reflecting on what still can be done to bring that into its fullness. Practicing loving kindness and compassion for ourselves and others. Letting go, what is it that we still are working on to let go of possessions or relationships, people? And of course, the letting go is the letting go of the attachment. Letting go of the, um, the stickiness. 
while maintaining the love that is selfless or the, re- the caring and the responsibility that is appropriate. We're going to talk in more detail about serenity meditation, that development of joy, happiness, and tranquility. And we're also going to talk more about insight. How does insight occur? What can we do to set up the causes and conditions for that to happen? To really recognize aging, sickness, and death for what they are and to recognize the nature of everything in this conditioned realm as impermanent and inherently unsatisfactory and not me or mine. And then, of course, doing as much good as we can, recalling that, reflecting upon it, and developing faith. So this is the faith, as we've talked about before, in the truth that there is this awakening, that Nibbana is, is real, that we have this opportunity to cultivate, to realize it. And that is the first step out of the cycle of suffering. The Buddha said that's the first step to break out of the, the chain of dependent origination. you have a question? So the, uh, what, you, what you shared about your sister-in-law mm-hmm. would seem to be relevant to the third bullet, letting go of attachment to people. Mm-hmm. So in that case your sister-in-law and her son, what would losing attachment to her son look like? I'm, it seems like a simple concept. I, I don't know what it means. I don't know what attitude she would now be reflecting should she somehow lose that attachment that's so painful. Yeah, I appreciate your question because I want to try to make this as clear as I can. We're all on this path of progress. As we pick up what the Buddha taught, I mean, the Buddha, when people came to him in deep grief, he never said, I'm sorry for your loss. Oh, this is tragic or terrible. He brought people right into the reality of how every body, every aspect of this realm is impermanent and falls away. An attachment to it of any kind is suffering. And the, the bigger picture of many lifetimes in which we have this opportunity to cultivate and develop. So for my sister-in-law, for me, for any of us, the practice of developing our meditation, our virtue, our wisdom to see the true nature of things causes changes in the way we see the world and understand reality and the orientation of the heart. So for those who really experience 
that everything in this realm is falling apart. That's its nature. You'll see this in the suttas where someone will realize that everything is impermanent, that there is this inherent suffering in it, and that it's not a self. They'll realize everything's falling apart and that that's natural. And then what's counterintuitive before we have such a realization is that what comes with it is a relief, is an opening and a joy. Because you, the, the realization is that we keep trying to push things back up this hill into place, and it's sliding. And there's no way we're going to really stop it. And then we don't have to. It's a freedom. The way that changes the heart orientation towards others, like our sons, our daughters, our parents, our loved ones, is that the compassion grows to an enormity, and the kindness and the caring but the, the attachment that is the selfish part of it completely falls away. So it's, it's, it's like, it's not to say that she should feel differently than she feels. We're all in a process. She has great faith. She's a Christian. She has a lot of faith. She is in this process as I am in this process. And all of us. And it's, it's like, Cultivating that faith, cultivating that understanding of reality, working with the situations that we have, and developing the mind, lead us over time, over lifetimes, according to the Buddha, and I believe completely, over lifetimes, to a way of being in the world that is completely with peace and and happiness and serenity and compassion. Now, it's very helpful to meet and know and even live with people who have had this experience because you begin to see that kind of radiance and irrepressible joy and compassion for everyone without discrimination. And that's what awaits us. I, um, I think there's some again, uh, confusion about the word attachment. So Lonely, could you stand up for a second? I have your hand? I don't know. So, you can be connected to somebody and love them dearly. Or you could be attached and clinging. This is not the perspective of a person who is awakened. But it's confusing because the English word attachment, thank you, Lai, can mean more than one thing. Yes, Steve. I don't think the Buddha ever used the word attachment. Hello? Yeah. 
I don't think the Buddha ever used the word attachment. I mean, he used clinging. He word clinging, and even clinging is it depends on how you translate. Yeah, but that. even clinging is what, what, what the Buddha meant by clinging is a fire will take sustenance from its fuel, so it clings to its fuel. Um, Tanisha Bhikkhu likes to translate it as taking sustenance, so you're you're feeding off of something. We constantly feed off of psychically feed off people and, and you can think about it and if you watch it in your meditation you're feeding off things your mind is and you got to look what you're feeding off I mean I, I remember one time I looked at my mind I was thinking about something boy I'm really feeding off junk food I mean this is garbage I can't believe my mind is going there and his view of the whole spiritual path is that first of all you're putting yourself on a health food diet you stop eating junk like getting angry at people and feeding off of that and feeding off of greed until and you get more and more refined food and then a perfectly enlightened person doesn't need to feed that's why you can feel safe around them. Not that they he or she is not going to want anything from you so they're not going to feed off of you so that's I, I like it better than than attachment people put all these concepts on attachment even clinging I have difficulty with that word there's a selflessness in it there's a, there's a letting go. If, if those of you who have children, you know what it's like to, to cling to them, and you know what it's like to let them go. And the love actually grows in the letting go. Oh, she's got one. So it's... Um like thinking of really about what's best in the sense for. Is it on? Uh, it's green. Okay. Yeah. Okay, you can hear it. Okay. Put it like this. Ice cream crumb. Okay. It's um, not. The top is. There you go. Um, like considering, if you could consider what's really best for that person. Mm-hmm. Because holding on to them, clinging to them is not good for them, it's not helpful to them. Right. So. Um, that kind of letting go. And there are stages to this. So we, we get the sense of something, we let go, and we learn, we see how much relief there is in it, and then we go on to the next thing and the next thing. It's better to start, or it's easier to start with small things and work our way through. And then we need to, within the bounds of keeping virtue and precepts and and other um, aspects of the practice, working with the things that are really difficult. And the more we look at the nature of reality, really the Buddha wanted us to look every day, even with every breath. As, as we do that, we become more used to it. It's like now, my, as I've told you, my mother is in this final phase. And I'm very different with this than I would have been 20 years ago. Very different. Because I've had this opportunity now to really look deeply at the nature of reality. And it's, it, there's, there's um, this chance for all of us. So what we want to look at here is how do we take these steps? And the Buddha gave this discourse and the Upanisha Sutta is online. You may have read it this past week. It's in the homework. 
And he talked about how when they're suffering, we can continue to, to cling, grasp, feed, however you want to say it, and keep uh, looking at things from a perspective of how um, vital these impermanent things are to us, or we can start to see their true nature and let go. And the first step in that letting go is faith, or the first step in that awakening is faith. And that's what Siddhartha Gautama saw when he saw the Samana. He's like, wow, there's a way out of this. And that's the faith that gets built bit by bit, block by block, as we experience as we experience people who are further along on the path than we are, as we experience the gains that we make and the insights that we have. And that faith, that, that confidence that gets developed in Nibbana, in freedom, automatically provides the conditions for joy to arise. Like when I described the insight that comes when people realize that everything is falling apart and that's natural and it's okay. There's nothing to be unhappy about. There's a joy that comes up. You can't stop smiling for days. That kind of thing. That joy is a particular word in Pali. It's pamoja. And it's used in different places in the canon to describe spiritual joy. It's a joy of realizing that you, you did make an accomplishment spiritually or you, you have the joy of giving in that very selfless way. That kind of thing is pamoja. And that joy provides the cause and condition for piti to arise, sometimes translated as rapture or joy, these English words are not nearly as precise as the Pali words are. Because pamoja can be translated as gladness, for example. PT is more um, intense, perhaps. And PT provides the basis for tranquility, pasadi, to arise, which is more peaceful more stable. And from there, from pasadi, tranquility, sukha, which is a kind of sweet happiness that's much more subtle but full, I would say. And that provides the basis for samadhi, the kind of concentration where the mind can really go still. This is the chain of practice of putting in causes and conditions that you might consider the whole of serenity meditation or serenity practice. But the Buddha didn't stop there. And all over in the, in the canon, he praises and encourages people to practice serenity meditation, do jhana. And Yet, that's not the goal. Do samadhi, but that's not the goal. From that stillness of mind, 
that's where the knowledge and vision of things as they really are emerges. And people will recount their experiences. It's not necessarily that you always have these realizations while in deep meditation or just coming out of deep meditation. Sometimes people have these experiences listening to a Dhamma talk or even speaking about the Dhamma. But it's because of that cultivation of the samadhi that the, the, you might say the field has been tilled and the, and the opportunity becomes ripe. When we see the way things actually are, that's the cause and condition for disenchantment. And you probably have become disenchanted with certain things of the world that you were enchanted by before. Someone was sharing with me that, you know, his sister who's um, maybe in her 60s, I'm guessing by now, she's disenchanted with falling in love. (laughs) You might be disenchanted with the Tesla. (laughs) Or whatever. But that gives us a, a... an example. We have these examples in our life. When I was young and in college, I was studying computer science. I was pretty enchanted with all the researchers out here in California. And then when I graduated, I came to work out here. And it lost some of its luster, I must say. You know, you know how it is. But this kind of disenchantment is disenchantment with the world. And it doesn't mean that an aversion arises. It's not that way either. It doesn't go to that other side. It's, it's just a like, look at that. Look at what's really there. And then dispassion comes. You just don't have that desire to gain it. And nor to get rid of it, there's a dispassion, a coolness You can even have this arise about politics. It's possible. It's possible. And and the next step is full liberation. (laughs) That's postdoc. And when when you read the Pali Canon, you begin to see again and again that the Buddha encourages looking at what we just experienced or what we just gained and acknowledging it. And so you would think, well, liberation, that's it, right? But actually, there's a next step where the knowledge and vision, the knowledge of of what you actually, what was ended, the knowledge that there are no more taints. The desire for sensual pleasure is ended. The desire for becoming is ended. Ignorance has ended. And it's that knowing, it's like, wow, it's cut off completely. 
when the mind says, okay, well, that's all very high and noble and idealistic, try not to buy into that. Realize that the Buddha gave us these instructions because he knew we could follow them. Otherwise, he wouldn't have taught it. And he said that. I wouldn't teach you this if I didn't think you could do it. And we have to take that in and put our effort in this direction. And when the mind says, you know, I don't know if I like the idea of Nibbana, it seems kind of dull. (laughs) Acknowledge that barrier and see what you can do to further develop the faith in what the Buddha actually experienced and many, many, many other people after him. So I wanted to just recap in a little bit different way with practical steps, cultivating and developing virtue, doing as much good as we can, practicing both serenity and insight meditation. And even though there's a lot that's discussed and written about and, and even like the way it's been presented today as if they're two separate things in practice it's not so separate and most of the time when we realize things it's, it's not exactly the way it sounded in the books or in other people's descriptions because this is working beyond words and when you experience these things then you go oh okay see how that is. And the fundamentals of the Four Noble Truths, paying attention to our suffering, not letting that go by and indulging in those, you know, denial and avoidance and escape and whatnot, but every opportunity really be present with what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, what's happening in the body and in the mind so that we can make Uh, gains on the path. So that's what I wanted to say. What do you want to say? (laughs) What what are practical steps for each of these points? Um, I know for myself, uh, for me, to suddenly realize, ah, I am suffering. Yeah, and it may, I may have been feeling that way for some time. And then to recognize it uh, allows me to penetrate those physical sensations and find out what's body and what is my mental construction of it. But what, what are other practical Things so the, do. the Buddha gave great instructions, of course, in the Satipatthana Sutta about how you can approach this on a classical level. And really using, when we're, when we're suffering, when we're feeling discomfort, it can be any amount on a whole range. 
developing the ability to stand there and be with it, be with it and not in it, as they say. One of the approaches I use is feeding your demons. I don't know if you've heard of that. Lama Sultra Malayoni is a, a Tibetan Lama woman who was a Tibetan nun early in her life, and she took one of the Tibetan practices and um, sort of westernized it in a way that's accessible to us. It's, it's, a, it's a process to use. Uh, we can find that kind of technique helpful. But really developing our uh, strength, our muscle, in being able to stay with the suffering in a way that really observes it. So in that technique of feeding your demons, it's um, I, looking at the qualities and characteristics of this suffering. As Bill said, we can feel it in the body. It's, um, it's, it can be used for physical suffering or it can be used for, for mental suffering. And mental suffering has a way of presenting in the body. The Buddha talked about feeling things with the body and knowing with the body. This like insight arises and you feel it in your body. Have you experienced that? Something you can't even justify intellectually. You can feel in your body and you can know it's right. Yeah. So he said, use this body. Use this, for me, five-foot-three-inch body, and it can show me everything. Not as a, you know, if I look at it as a body and use the body as the, the referent through which I look at the mind. So it's, it's those are, um, so the, all of the different techniques that you'll find that the Buddha gave, anapanasati, using the breath, um, using the, the brahma-viharas of, of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, and really learning about the, their applicability to different situations. Using the, the investigation into the unbeautiful side of the things that we find beautiful. And the beautiful side of the things that we find distasteful. The Buddha gave many techniques. As one monk that I, that I sat with, the Buddha was all about method. So when you act, ask about practical means, there are lots of different tools in the box and it's really helpful to have a teacher who can guide you. And it's really helpful to be committed to finding what works for you, yourself. I mean, Ajahn Sumedho at one point said that the main thing he felt people needed was encouragement. You know, that we really need to be encouraged. Yes, you can do this. Yes, it will pay off all along the way. Not just like the big enchilada at the end. It's like all along the way you gain more peace, more freedom, more inner stability, more resilience. But don't, don't you have to notice that when it is actually there so that you recognize that what you're doing is actually working? Yes, yes. You reflect back upon what you're doing and you notice it. Now, it's also advisable, like, you know, if someone starts a meditation practice that they're not just kind of like constantly looking for results. 
but rather you, you do it for three months or six months, and then you look and you notice the difference in your life. Because the difference shows up in your life. Yes? Yeah, let, let me add to that. I mean, you know, if you look at the way we normally live our lives and do things, it's like, let's say you want to run a marathon. I mean, the first day, you're not going to run 26 miles. I mean, you know that. You have a training thing. But a lot of people, when it comes to, like, meditation, I see, they're astounding that they can't quiet their minds the first day. You know, they, they bring these whole set of different attitudes towards spiritual practice that they wouldn't, they wouldn't bring to undertaking a project in a normal life. And I and I were talking last night, the thing I just love about the Buddhist teachings, if you really look at it and you read the canon, they're filled with everyday examples. I mean, he uses examples of carpenters and cooks and very common things that, that people could relate to. And I really see in a lot of Westerners when it comes to uh, also the Thai Ajans use crafts of making baskets and making hats. And, but I, I, I'm astounded with the Westerners that immediately, you know, if they, if they don't get into the jhanic states on the first try, I mean, they're a failure. And, and it takes lots of patience and a lot of work and a lot of diligence. You've got to constantly inspire yourself. And that's why also if you put your eggs all in one basket of, let's say, just working on concentration, I mean, if you have your generosity and your virtue, you see other parts of that are working and building up. And so it's like a whole eightfold path that you need to work on. Yes, not just the mindfulness part. And not just mindfulness the way it's presented nowadays, but actually that willingness and ability to be present with our suffering. So you get better and better at catching when I'm uncomfortable, when I'm, when I'm suffering, when I want to push something away, when I want to draw it towards me. The discomfort of wanting and not getting. All of those things are are the grist for the mill of awakening, if we use them in the right way. You know, there's an image that struck me. Anybody seen curling? You know what that is? Uh, it's, they have this big stone that they throw down the ice, oh, yeah. and there's people who sweep ahead of it to make it go faster. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that our lives, imbued with virtue, with generosity, with love, with forgiveness, is exactly the way that we sweep our path. Because if we're living that way, then these teachings uh, permeate without uh, really much uh, impediment. That they, that they become more real, because we, we're already noticing things. And say, oh yeah, I just did that. I didn't. I remember that Dharma talk, and it isn't that you go like this, but um, the foundation is there for a purpose, and the pursuit of going farther down the path takes um, mentors, teachers, as well as study. Study. Practice, meaning meditation in this case, virtue, development of virtue, and service. Those are the four legs of the table. If something's not feeling right in life, you can look at those four and find out which one's cut a bit short. Say those again. Study, practice of 
meditation and it could be devotional practice also virtue and service so there's the generosity the selflessness and the funny part about this you know as we're talking about bill was talking about how our our development of virtue our development of kindness and generosity help to make it possible for insight to arise the opposite also works when insight arises we can't we can't cheat on our taxes anymore <laughs> we can't you know there's this lovely story of this very generous queen who had a um, a servant that she would send to the market for flowers for the for the harem for the women's quarters of the palace and every day she would take the eight coins and she would spend four of them on flowers and four of them on herself stealing and then one day when she was in the marketplace someone said that the buddha was in town and he was teaching and she should go listen and she went to listen and while she was listening, she had that realization, which is stream entry, everything's, everything that arises ceases. And she didn't even quite know what happened to her, but she couldn't use four coins for herself anymore. And she bought eight coins worth of flowers, and she came back to the palace, and the queen said, why are there so many flowers? <laughs> and she told her the whole thing. And the queen who is very, very kind and generous, said, this is great. I want you to go, because we're not allowed out. You go to the Buddha every day and listen to what he says and then come back and teach us. Tell us all about it. Is that a service that we can uh, do? <laughs> no, 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 not, I mean, yes. We, we come here to IMC and, and we hear Dharma talks or Adam. But is that a service that we can do as we've encountered things that a lot of people don't dare to look at. Hmm. And so do we take what we have dared look at and without uh, foisting them on people, without you know, forcing them here, look at this, um, by our very presence, uh, serve others by allowing them to get close to something um, that's hard. Because the, the closer we have come to dealing with aging and illness and dying, uh, the more, I'll say, expert in the reality of it we, we can be. Um, and that becomes then a service that we provide to others particularly others whom we love. But uh, as within any relationship, um, you know, uh, enter gently. Well, it is, as you say, more about being it than doing it, and more about being, um, living whatever it is that we've realized. And sometimes we don't. We realize something and then we go back to our habits. And so that's another reason to reflect if insight arises, really notice it and log the feeling that was in the body when it came and go back to it again and again because our karma is really strong. That tangle of, 
energies and impressions and imprints that are in that karmic flow, that flow of energy or consciousness or whatever you want to call it, that caused your incarnation to come into being and will go out again when this body is done and on to something else. There's a lot there that's quite embedded. And we need to, like, chip it apart, pull it apart, soften it up, change. And notice that we've changed. So the work that we do for ourselves is actually, the work that we do for ourselves is actually uh, a kindness to the other people around us. And if it is authentic work, if we live the Dharma that we've learned, then it's like a flower that doesn't care whether you're smelling the fragrance or not. It's just flowers busy being a flower. So if you ever think that there's some dichotomy between the path of the Arahant and the Bodhisattva, it's a false one. When you, when you realize, the more you realize and the more you live through that realization, the more you're helping all beings. And um, it, it just depends on where you put the emphasis, but there's no way you can help all beings and not wake up. <laughs> so... It's, uh, it's not something to concern yourself with. Just go for the real deal. <laughs> Do it. What's the Pali word for whole enchilada? I don't know. <laughs> Let me think about that. Sorry. Reminds me of what you're saying. There's a line from the Tibetan Book of the Dead that says, the downward pull from enlightenment is strong in you. Yeah. We have a lot of habits. And that habit energy can take over if we don't pull ourselves away. That's why the Buddha again and again, you know, you have to be really determined and ardent and resolute. You have to really, you know, be committed like your hair's on fire, even if you don't have any. <laughs> Anything else before we go talk to each other? Small groups. So you're very welcome to talk about where you're at in this whole process. You know, what do you see as the the things that stand in your in your way, or what do you see as the gains that you've made, perhaps? And you also might want to reflect with each other on what's changed for you during this course in these weeks. So you people remember where the their groups meet? Yes. Good. I think we're gonna give you a little extra time today. I think we should come back about Oh, 10 after? So this is uh, 
kind of the last chance we have to talk together for a while at least. And what would you like to ask or share or reflect upon together? There were certainly lively conversations in group. So I know that something's bubbling. Yes. <laughs> we had a wonderful uh, meeting. We're even thinking about maybe doing a reunion. Who knows? <laughs> in a month or so. But uh, we all want to thank you for... I, it feels so, I feel so inspired um, on this journey. I, this has been a really important class for me. And I think we all kind of felt that way that... Um, we're all inspired. <laughs> okay. And it is mutual. Other comments? I also want to uh, share the extreme gratitude I feel. I think you're so highly qualified people. I just feel we're so lucky, worth dying for. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Well, the requirements for membership in here would be uh, naked scalps. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's in training. <laughs> Let me um, offer a counterpoint to um, like the last call for alcohol. Uh, this has been really important, certainly for me, and, and I know for all of us. Fifth uh, precept, Bill. Fifth precept. Fifth precept. <laughs> it's been. Just kidding, Look, just kidding. You, you guys have known me now for five weeks, and you've got a, some sense of my sense of humor. So just, you know, be patient with me. Um, I would like to have a group, and I'm willing to lead it as a facilitator, not a teacher, so that we can continue, really, to experience um, dealing with the messengers, all of them, one through four, and be witnessed by people who have also walked along uh, this path with us. And so sometime later this spring, uh, and there's a sign-up sheet uh, for those, if you're, there's three columns. So I'm, I'm really interested, uh, maybe, and then no thanks. Um, those people who are uh, really interested, or maybe, uh, I'll get back in touch with by email uh, and let you know, we still have to work out the logistics. We're going to um, try and have a room this size, but I'm not... If it is, if it is to be here... Okay. Um, the fellow with hair will make things move. <laughs> um, 
You can go a long way with hair. I just want you to know that. I don't even remember that. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate and the feedback that we get uh, from filling out the, the questionnaires is important to us. So I, I would hope that, um, and you also take the opportunity, if this, if you have more complex than just notes on a few inches of white paper, um, you can email them to, I guess, Steve? Yeah. yeah, yeah Steve's yeah, uh, email's on it. Um, and so we, we will read and take these to heart. There were some, I just was wandering around the room and hearing some conversations. And there were some deep things said. Is anybody willing to um, share in a room filled with um, people who will receive what you say uh, openly and gently? And it is being recorded. <laughs> um, yeah, that too. Yes. Get a mic, please. Well, what I became aware of is that the biggest thing in my way is um, focusing on stuff that doesn't matter, you know, like being distracted with the dust and the politics and the, you know, all the stuff mm -hmm. that doesn't really help me yes what a tremendous realization that's a tremendous awareness and to ask that question does this matter and you've probably heard the the buddha's handful of leaves when he picked up the leaves and asked the monks what's more are the leaves in my hand or the leaves in this forest and they said well the leaves in the forest and he said that's what i know the leaves in the forest, but what I teach are the leaves in my hand. Why? Because that's what will bring you to awakening. That's what will bring you to Nibbana. And so we have so many leaves fluttering around us and in our face. And, and then the question of how can I be practicing for awakening, turning away from the unwholesome, cultivating the wholesome, the good and purifying the mind as I do what I'm responsible to do as I look after the people and the world in a way that's productive. So it's not like we put our own awakening on hold. We make this life the practice of awakening. And it, as re, it, that insight, that awareness that you described, that is essential. Don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff, except awakening, which is big stuff. Um, what uh, I have mentioned in terms of the arahant and the bodhisattva paths not being separate. Or in a dichotomy. Um, they are 
names for a simultaneous activity of heart-mind, of citta. I happen, maybe just because I never uh, really applied myself to the suttas, um, taken much more of the service path uh, through my career in medicine. So it's obvious that the things I've talked about were much more from the perspective of a physician. And um, they were titled practical, though I think that um, the path of awakening is intensely practical. Uh, you don't, not everybody goes bingo um, this lifetime. But, um, and, and, and by the way, just my experience as a, I'm a trained scientist, I went to Harvard and Stanford, I, you know, I, I, I actually took math and understood it. <laughs> um, my experience is that something lives after our bodies die. In fact, I actually gave a sermon at the church I go to with the pastor discussing the question, what happens after you die? So in terms of an ecclesiastical um, mismatch, here you've got um, a guy who was raised Jewish, um, attends a Methodist church, and is a practicing Buddhist, talking with a woman who is a, a pastor in a Christian uh, tradition. And yet we had common experiences that let us know that it's not over. And so there are opportunities, even if we don't think, you know, this time around, um, that's the brass ring I'm gonna go for. Uh, don't forget that there are more chances and it is worth um, listening. I know that from um, teaching with and listening to Aya that uh, I will deepen my uh, Sutta study uh, to pursue this further. Um, and, I, and I encourage people to recognize, even if you have some practical things like after the laundry, you know, after the ecstasy, the laundry, um, we all have laundry to do in terms of our laundry list for our lives. But um, there's more to it than that. And I, and I encourage people to avail themselves of the teachings that occur here at IMC. Yes. Uh, I have a question along that. We were talking today, and I, you know, about well, what if I uh, arrived kind of at the hospital, um, kind of dead already? But I believe, like you, that the spirit is—I call it spirit. I don't know what to call it. Consciousness, whatever. It's not hasn't left the body. The body is still, and I want to have, you know, a singing or chanting or, you know, and how do I, how does that happen if I'm in the hospital and I'm declared dead? I mean, does somebody, can somebody come in there and say, I want this body? I mean. Um, I know I can speak for El Camino Hospital. And that it, when people die, there is uh, allowance made for the family to be with the body uh -huh. for a period of time, not, you know, for weeks. Um, is it four uh, hours? Pardon? Is it four hours? Uh, <clears throat> I understand that if you're in, like, a medical facility, 
like you, a nursing home the, or something, four hours is, is can, what I've heard. The nurses understand, and if it takes longer than that, at least mm -hmm. at El Camino, they'll do that. So, yes. We have so an expert someone, in the field. Someone just commented that it helps to have this wish in your directive. Um, so I'm a retired ICU nurse, and many times this came up. Um, if we can, we try to leave the body in the room and allow for family to arrive, friends and family to arrive and have their grieving time. It just depends if there are really sick people that need to come in. Sometimes mm -hmm. uh, it, it can get kind of sticky and sometimes people have already been sent to the morgue and then the nursing supervisor takes people down. You know, it's a big refrigerator for bodies. It's, <laughs> you know, not a pleasant thought. But on the other hand, I also had a friend who really didn't want her husband's body to go to the morgue and they wanted to bring him home. And so Stanford said, okay, you need to, she set up with a, um, a funeral home to drive his body over the hill to Aptos to their home. And then they kept him. There are home funerals. There are, there are things out there. You can keep the body on dry ice for a couple of days. And then mm. um, there are alternatives. But you probably want to look into that before the time yeah. happens. There, there are certain traditions um, yeah. that the family washes the body. Right. And those are definitely honored in hospitals. Yes. Though, the, you know, it may be a, a short shower, but... Uh, well, we, but we always... I know that you do everything you can. We would offer that option, and some people would go, yes, I want to do that, and others would go, no, and sometimes the mother wouldn't want to, but the grandmother did. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Having it in an advanced directive really makes a difference. Okay. Also, I just want to comment that in my um, sort of what I'm aware of is that the consciousness leaves the body differently for different people. It's not like the same thing. I mean, you can imagine your experiences in life, if you've been married more than once or divorced more than once or had more than one child or had more than one automobile, every experience is different. And death is like that too, even though you've died many times. And whether the consciousness is still there um, may vary. Um, I just um, heard that it was... Uh, but in the East Bay, because I have a close friend whose father died, they would not let her 
take him and she ended up going through a lot to actually almost steal him. I mean, they kind of, in the end, she found a way to do it, to bring him home because they had family ritual, like you were mm-hmm. saying, from many different religions, you know, for many days. But she said it was just that it was totally denied by an East Bay hospital. And so I'm, that's why it's important. What do we need to so do? So that's why we live on the peninsula. Well, and, yeah. and yeah. looking well, into I mean, these I'm things that are important that to that us way. ahead yeah. of time is yeah. a good idea. Yeah. So get your ducks in a row um, with the, the mortuary and the funeral home and the hospital that you might check it out and see what needs to happen in order for that to. And I absolutely recognize that um, in the CCU, when there are lots of people who need that level of care, and the bed shortage uh, determines the hospital must provide for those people who need the medical care. Last week we talked about um, singing and um, I called it the Celestial Choir and there's another name. I wanted to get some information about that before I leave today. So do you have it? Okay. But I have to leave right at the end. I'm okay. going to go sing with them on the hospice unit. So. <laughs> so can you write down um, on a piece of paper the contact information, please? Yes. <laughs> I will leave it here. Thank you. There's a question over here or a comment. <coughs> Two things I wanted to say. First of all, to return and thank you very much for this um, opportunity to be here. It's felt to me like this was a jewel and that to have these conversations in this setting is especially meaningful. And um, I have really felt nourished by it, inspired by it, and um, my professional life is dedicated to, to many of these same areas, but these discussions are rare. So um, I, I was really appreciative of my small group because I've been at IMC for a long time and haven't had the kind of connection that I felt that this um, topic and the way that you encouraged us, the encouragement with the questions that were easy to begin with, really enabled a, some really meaningful um, discussions and connections. So uh, thank you very much. And the other thing I was going to mention is last week someone uh, mentioned the Book of Joy, which I promptly got, and soon after that went to the doctor and got a diagnosis and had a cancer diagnosis and had a quick decision to make and did all the things that were needed. And um, in four or five days had the surgery. I'm, I'm doing, it was yesterday, I feel great. But I think that all these materials, and I felt kind of funny saying, you know, they said, take it easy on Wednesday. And I thought, but I have to go to my illness, you know, (laughs) sickness and dying class. I can't miss it, you know. So um, I I would have loved to hear what the doctor was thinking. I know. And I had to get the directive done, ran to the bank. I mean, so this was very timely. Um, and that's, I'm saying that in joke. But there's another book that I wanted to mention that has really been helpful to me. And it's, many of you may know it, it's um, written by, um, I can never hear say, Olivia Hoblitzville. It's 10,000 Joys and 10,000 Sorrows. And it's the story of her 
and her husband, who are both Buddhists, they were good friends of Thich Nhat Hanh, and that was the group they have traveled with. So they're very advanced in their practice. And they discuss his, um, in the book, she's a nurse, his discuss, the discussion and is about their journey as he's diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And to journey that last portion together in as much, in, in as a, an awake and open and welcoming of that experience as they could. And included in it, he does, he does pass away. And there's a beautiful closure to the book which talks about his wishes in his, um, in being, uh, well, the whole, it's not just that. There's just a, a very full discussion of everything we've talked about here. So you might want to, 10,000 Joys and 10,000 Stars. It's published under another name, but I can't think of it. But it's, it's at Amazon. Okay. Who's the author again? Oh. If you just put in go, go to the title. It's Hoblitzville. Yeah. Yeah. Olivia Hoblitzville. Okay, so it... Olivia Hoblitzville. 10,000 Joys and 10,000 Stars. Okay. So I think we've reached the time... Um, <clears throat> There was a request for a separate recording of the chant. Um, so You're I think stuck. we'll go ahead and do that.